Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Decarbonising our economy isn't necessarily easy, but there's some new technology which may help. Now, there are certain parts of our economy and our global network of trade which are difficult to decarbonise, whether that be fertilisers in the production of them using the Haber-Bosch process, or even transport like aviation and ships. Getting these to be less CO2 emission heavy is really important if we have any hope of reducing our emissions globally. Now, the recent IPCC report paints a pretty stark picture. The message is clear. Without a rapid move to decarbonise our society and all countries, we will start to see more and more significant impacts of climate change. Now, it doesn't matter if you think the target should be 2050, 2035 or 2030. Regardless, action needs to be taken and taken fast rather than delayed. Now, one of the things is, despite all the efforts we might do with putting solar panels on our roofs or maybe even driving an electric vehicle, there are certain elements of our economy that decarbonisation is tricky, to say the least. Because if you think about all emissions related to transport, that equates to around 22% of yearly human-made CO2 emissions. That's pretty significant. Now, short-range light-duty vehicles, that's around 50% of that 22%. So let's call it 11% of total emissions. And that's okay because for most people, a electric or hybrid, but appropriately electric vehicle, can go a long way to reducing that CO2 footprint. The challenge is the other half of that bracket of transport emissions, because there are many vehicles out there that play important roles in keeping our society function, people fed, and global commerce to work. That is, of course, the transport industry for trucks, for tankers, and of course, for airplanes. Now, the problem with these large vehicles are they're finely tuned, and every gram, every kilogram, every corner of that vehicle is tightly calculated to make sure that journey is efficient as possible. You'll hear things around how airplane manufacturers shave off fractions of a gram off each of their seats in order to have some huge fuel saving. Now, they're driven by economics because of the price of jet fuel in that case, but it also is an emissions question. If you wanted to switch away from, say, jet fuel or maybe diesel for a ship, if you want to go to something else, you can't carry something that's really, really heavy. And herein lies the problem. Battery electric vehicles are pretty good for a car because the trade-off on how much batteries you need to carry for your journey makes sense for adding that extra weight. If you want to throw in some more batteries, then there becomes a tipping point when the more batteries you add don't actually gain you any extra kilometers because, well, the energy density equation sort of falls over. You can't carry enough batteries to make any further extensions because of the weight added by the batteries themselves. This concept of energy density is really important. Lithium batteries and even hydrogen fuel cells, they have a limited energy density compared to other options, which means that for an aeroplane or for a tanker, a ship, well, it's not ideal. They would have to carry far too many batteries in order to be efficiently able to fly. Now, for freight transport and aviation, they equate for around 4% and 2% of global CO2 emissions, respectively. 
The problem is the conventional alternatives like with battery electric vehicles don't quite translate to that scale. So what can we do to decarbonize these areas that are pretty essential for the modern world? Now researchers from Northwestern University, Travis Schumas and Scott Barnett have published in the journal ACS Letters about a comparison of all the different energy sources that could be considered for these long-haul vehicles and what is the most viable of all the techniques out there to decarbonize these important parts of our global transport mix. And what they focused on was a combination method of using solid oxide fuel cells along with onboard CO2 capture. Now, this is a pretty tricky topic because you've probably heard of hydrogen fuel cells, but perhaps not solid oxide fuel cells. And CO2 carbon capture gets a pretty bad rep, mostly for being inefficient and not that useful. But the way in which they're talking about using it here seems to have a bit more legs. Now let's start with the basics. A solid oxide fuel cell is slightly different to a hydrogen fuel cell, mostly because it takes a source such as natural gas or hot steam together and combines them in a reformer. And this reformer unlocks some of the core components, the hydrogen, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and steam. Now these two, these combination of materials go into the anode side fuel cell. Now on the input side, not the fuel side, on the cathode end, you'll pump in oxygen, just regular old O2. Now between the cathode and the anode, you have basically the byproducts of natural gas and steam on one side and oxygen on the other. And then you free up the electrons basically through the normal cathodic reaction inside this fuel cell. Now the air and the fuel, the broken down natural gas in this case, are basically the constituents that go in on one side and the discharge is O2 out and also H2O and CO2 out the other side. Okay, so 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 far, instead of being a hydrogen fuel cell, which produces a nice lovely water on the output, this uses a different method, but produces water and CO2. Okay, well that doesn't seem great because it's producing CO2. We don't wanna have carbon dioxide emissions, so why would solid oxide fuel cells be a way to decarbonize transport? Now, it comes back to a question of storage. And this would apply equally for batteries, for regular fuel, or for hydrogen fuel cells. Think about a large shipping vessel. These vessels that carry our goods across the world, whether it be food, equipment, or commodities. These ships can consume a lot of fuel, around 250 tons of fuel a day. Now, that's a lot of fuel. And maybe you could say, well, just replace that with batteries. But A, that requires a hell of a lot of batteries. And the thing about batteries is they use a lot of rare, keyword rare, earth metals to make them. So it's a pretty carbon intensive operation to make batteries that far. And also they're pretty heavy. Now, the other problem is the charging time and the amount of batteries you'd need for a circumnavigating the globe type journey that these type of boats regularly take. Well, you'd actually need a bigger battery pack 
than the actual storage area of the ship. So that's not going to fly. If instead of batteries, you try to take hydrogen, well, the fuel tank for hydrogen would be massive. And that has a lot to do with the actual density of hydrogen itself. Now, that means if you really wanted to take another fuel source, well, you have to look for something that's pretty dense and pretty combined. Now, traditional carbon-based fuels are straightforward, but we don't want to have the emissions. So what else could we do? This is where the researcher's idea cleverly uses the properties of a solid oxide fuel cell. Because the solid oxide fuel cell itself dumps out CO2 as a byproduct pretty directly and pretty pure, and in as much as that you just get the CO2, nothing else. And you don't get it through burning or any other process where you basically have to vent it out. You can just pump that output pipe from the fuel cell straight back into the tank that it came from. Well, not quite the tank itself. Basically, the researchers suggest a tank that holds the raw components, the carbon-based fuel in the beginning, and through a movable divider on the inside, basically the CO2 afterwards. Now, the thing is, when CO2 is emitted through some other process of burning or combustion, well, the CO2 mixes with nitrogen and oxygen and takes up a huge volume. But when it's just CO2 on its own under pressure, it actually doesn't take up a hell of a lot of volume. When concentrated, like we're talking about here, and compressed, it can be stored in pretty much the same space as the regular fuel that was used to produce it in the first place. Which means that just by having a tank with a moving wall, basically you consume the fuel and as you consume the fuel, you produce the byproduct. And the byproduct basically goes through the fuel cell and comes out the other side back into the other end of the tank. This is incredibly neat because everything is just captured in the one tank. And the other neat part about this is, this is a pretty standard thing. You just have to replace the fuel tank with a double chamber tank and add the CO2 compressors on the inlet and you're done. You don't need to invent a new process. You don't need to invent some crazy massive charging station or a new way to deliver all the hydrogen fuel cells. This uses the existing technology on the ships and in the ports really neatly and really neatly captures the CO2. Basically, you're pumping the fossil fuel on one side. You don't burn it into the atmosphere. You combine it in the fuel cell. So no atmospheric CO2 is released as part of this process. And that is the key difference here. We're not talking about burning or combusting this fuel to make our motion. We're actually using the fuel cell to produce the motion. And in this way, we don't release CO2 into the atmosphere. We capture it immediately and put it back in the tank that it came from. This is very useful because you can do something else with that tank of CO2. Now the researchers outline how this capturing completely of the CO2 from the process, not by burning, which is always going to be lossy, but by a fuel cell, which doesn't really have much loss to the outside world, you end up with a full tank of CO2. And what do you do with it? We have two options. You can actually take it back to port when you dock and pump it back out into the refueling station it came from and then sequester it. And sequestering has a pretty bad rap, so maybe you don't want to do that. But what you can do is send it back out to an electrolytic fuel production station, which converts that CO2 back into a fuel source that you can use again, basically by adding renewable energy into the mix. In such a way, you are creating sort of a closed loop chain, which is incredibly handy and in a true sense, carbon neutral. That's pretty good as a minimum goal. 
because of course it means we're not adding to the emissions we are basically taking them out from the equation which is great in reducing our overall carbon footprint in terms of new emissions and at the same time you can extend it by making it carbon negative now how on earth can you make something like this still using carbon fuels carbon-based fuels into a carbon negative solution well the thing is when you use a fuel a carbon-based fuel you can get it not just from natural gas, you could also use a biofuel just as easily. It has all the core constituent ingredients that you would need in order to work with a solid oxide fuel cell. So in that instance, you're taking biofuels, which are already sequestered carbon from the atmosphere, and then keeping it as part of this closed loop chain of recycling and reuse. So in a way, you can turn one of the biggest emitters into actually a net negative of CO2 emissions without really inventing too much more new infrastructure. It's a pretty neat method with some obvious drawbacks, and that is it needs to be adopted. It will take time. These things are all true. But because of the energy density of this, far outweighing anything that could be achieved practically with batteries or hydrogen fuel cells, it provides a real clear way out for some of the dirtiest industries, aviation and transport, to migrate away from fossil fuels and into a renewable-based, carbon neutral, or even better, carbon negative contribution. Now, that is a really significant thing, because as much as our own personal changes and life choices may help contribute to CO2 reductions, until we tackle some big items like aviation and transport, we aren't really going to make a significant dent. So steps like this are important. They don't completely eliminate fossil fuels, but they far more efficiently handle the CO2 emissions. And by that, I mean, they don't have any atmospheric emissions unless you, for some reason, open this gas bottle full of compressed CO2. And they provide a path forward for actually converting that back into reusable fuel through electrolysis back with some renewable energy on, on land and can even use biofuels as an input as well. Now, this is a pretty interesting paper published out of Northwestern University, and it goes to show the benefit of something like a solid oxide fuel cell and how it can give us the energy density we need for some of these tricky applications, ones that couldn't be easily handled by, say, batteries, hydrogen fuel cells. Now, the solution isn't here today, but it is something that could be used into the future. And such energy intensive and when we think about decarbonizing our economy, having some of our dirtiest polluters in the air and the seas actually not polluting atmospheric CO2 at all, that is a big improvement, even if they're just neutral, let alone if they're negative. Some great research in the journal ACS Energy Letters by authors Schumas and Barnett. transport, one of the other major contributors for CO2 emissions is, of course, the creation of fertilizer. Now, this may not seem immediately obvious, but fertilizer helps keep our planet fed. And the invention of the Haber-Bosch process was one of the turning points in being able to feed sustainably the planet. And I mean sustainable in the sense of population. The problem is the Haber-Bosch process is pretty bad. On its own, as a process, it is around 2% of global CO2 emissions annually. So 
almost as bad as aviation. Tackle this problem, you can certainly make a big dent on it. But like aviation, we are too reliant on the Haber-Bosch process, literally to feed the world. So we need a less energy intensive solution. Now, the thing is, the Haber-Bosch process produces urea, which is one of the components used for making fertilizer. Of course, you yourself produce urea, so do all mammals, as part of their urine. But we need more than that than people can produce, and that's where the Haber-Bosch process comes in. Now, the thing is, it requires temperatures of around 500 degrees Celsius and pressures of 200 times atmospheric pressure. This is the key invention of the Haber-Bosch process. Temperature and pressure can be used to produce the compounds that we need to make. The problem is, as we said, it's energy intensivity. So a way to reduce that would be really good, cutting down emissions and just improving what is an over 100-year-old process. And that's where researchers from Singapore's Nanyang Technological University, NTU, come in. Now, they outline in the journal Nature Sustainability a new method to make this old process, the Haber-Bosch process, way more energy efficient and reduce emissions. Now, lead author on this paper is Charlie, Li Shangzhong, Heng Zhe Liu, and a large team of collaborators at NTU. Of course, they're not just going to completely remake the Haber-Bosch process. It's too energy intensive for that. Instead, they're focusing on electrolysis. Now, electrocatalysis is great where you use electricity to drive a chemical reaction and solution, but then it's all about the catalyst. Now, in this case, they're using a nanomaterial, indium hydroxide, and they can react nitrate and carbon dioxide on it and found that they could form urea as part of this catalytic system five times more efficiently than any other previous attempt using electrocatalysts. And the key to this is all around the highly selective manner in which they govern where and how this chemical reaction take place using the specifically developed catalyst. Now, this manipulation of the chemical reaction in a fine way around the catalyst is pretty essential because basically, as long as you provide the source materials and the catalyst, well, then it scales really well. And yes, you can increase surface area of the catalyst itself to change the reaction type, but you can actually have a pretty scalable process from the small scale lab test that they've done up to a bigger one. And fundamentally, it doesn't change that much, which is important because the complexity doesn't change significantly. Whereas scaling up, say, the Haber-Bosch process, the complexity changes a hell of a lot with a, from a small tank to a big one. And what they found is this process was actually a similar yield of urea to around 53.4% efficient. Now, that is pretty much on par with the Haber-Bosch process in industrial scale at the moment. So immediately, that's a great alternative, especially because electrocatalytic approaches can be actually renewable energy powered. Of course, it depends on where your electricity comes from, but if it's from a renewable energy source, then this is a pretty green solution. Of course, the actual construction of the catalyst itself and the component in materials into it will have some carbon footprint. So it's not completely neutral, but from an energy perspective, it's way less intense and much more scalable. It's even foreseeable that you could actually produce your own fertilizer on the farm, which would also cut down on that transport cost of lugging around all that fertilizer you've produced from one side of the world to the other. Overall, a pretty good deal for the environment and still keeps food on the tables. And this is what it's gonna to take to really have a big dent in emissions. Taking a lot of the standard processes that we take for granted today, transportation, creation of fertilizer, and finding ways to decarbonize them or make them way more efficient or be able to be powered by renewable energy. 
as in this case outlined here in the journal Nature Sustainability by researchers from Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From a more efficient electrolysis method for making fertiliser, to a way to make our ships and planes run a hell of a lot cleaner. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.